Welcome to episode 12. This is my conversation with Andrew Savage. Uh, Andrew's a registered teacher here in Wellington, and I was lucky enough to be able to work with Andrew for a while uh, at the Teaching Council. Um, and we we did start talking about teaching at the beginning, but our conversation naturally found its way into the topic of religion, of democracy, uh, of quite a few complex topics. And it was a conversation that I'm, I'm actually still trying to unpack to this day. Uh, there was a lot of depth to it, but I feel like so much of what we're presented with these days, and it might just be me, um, but I feel like a lot of what we're presented with these days is, is is very light, you know, very surface level. There's no real requirement to have to dig down into anything. Um, it's just a lot of, you know, what you see is what you get. Um, and what made this conversation really refreshing uh, to me was it required my full attention uh, just to try and understand half of what Andrew was was presenting. Um, and I think it's always a good thing w- uh, when something requires effort and, and time and thought uh, in order to, to unpack it and to understand it and, and to digest it. Um, so there's a lot in here. But I genuinely hope you take the time to listen to it all because I think what Andrew presents is quite a, a different perspective on things that that you and I all encounter on, on an almost daily basis. So my thanks to Andrew for the rewarding and insightful conversation and of course my thanks to you all for listening. It's a little unfair. Some of the um, accusation of religion be itself being homophobic. I think that like people are homophobic, and okay. that um, and that it doesn't really matter which movement or organisation or idea it is. That anything that's vulnerable, every idea is vulnerable to some sort of fundamentalist interpretation. Right. So that's a very good point. So like. I was talking to the, my, my my son's actually has gone to um, straight edge hardcore, oh, yeah. which is you know I'm interested. I remember you playing me some of that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So we're talking about straight edge, and that's kind of the idea that you know it's no alcohol, no drugs, no meat, you know all that kind of stuff. And then we we're talking about how oh, it's a great idea for a teenager, to be honest. Like I'm kind of happy about that, but at the same time that it's um, it's also vulnerable to an extremism that people are going to become judgmental or kind of puritanical about it, and then it becomes a weapon to wield against you if you. You know, don't meet the expectations of the straight edge community. It's got nothing to do with religion or spirituality. It's got simply to do with people wanting certainty. And I kind of think that like religion is often used as an alibi for that kind of stuff. Okay, an excuse, the yeah. scapegoat. Yeah, if, uh, yeah, exactly. For the things that people are uncertain or uncomfortable or don't really feel like they have enough um, courage to actually engage with the other. So it's easier to find like a, um, a reason to not and kind of a reason to sort of uh, take a stand against something as opposed to learning about it. And I think that, um, you know, democracy, capitalism, communism, Christianity, Islam, you name it, can be manipulated to take those positions. Now, unfortunately, in things like Christianity or Mormonism, I suppose that in the scriptures there are definitely verses or scriptural references to kind of things like homosexuality, which are like... um, can clearly be interpreted as negative, but I think that they lack. It's like it's like people become guilty of presentism and apply like 
modern understandings to ancient societies, which are actually completely, distinctly different contexts. So one good example from my tradition is in the um, in one of the epistles to the Romans, I think it is, is that there's conversations around um, homosexual relationships is what you could potentially infer but when you actually do your research it's actually about um, the exploitation of prostitutes you know of boys as prostitutes so that's slightly different like I mean I'm I'm not really keen on exploitation (laughs) but I'm but but it's not about a loving same-sex relationship it's about exploitation of people for personal pleasure or whatever it might be and I think that that's kind of much more in line with something I can stand by right wow that's interesting yeah but I don't and then if you go even earlier back into kind of some of the more ancient Hebrew stuff like there's this is one part where it talks about homosexuality being an abomination or something like that but that's quite a distinct abomination is quite a distinct um, phrase that's used in that, this context and it's actually around in reference to another tribe that's that at the time is practicing child sacrifice and it's abomination the child sacrifice was part of that right of child sacrifice there was um, sex rites were a part of it so it's kind of like connected to this worship of this god called Moloch which was you know connected to all these kind of things so I'm not saying it's, it's clear and it maybe unfortunately it's been um, people might say well then why would what kind of tradition would require you to do that much research to understand this yeah. it's like well because it's not it's not a linear I mean it, it's not like um it's not like there's some kind of uh, single response to anything like it's all interpretation like it's, it's all growing and learning and changing so it's kind of like there's nothing that I believe today that I believed exactly the same even last week you know <laughs> it's like it has to be in motion and surely that's the kind of that is the, the true um, I suppose it's the, to me that's the true sign of engagement is that something is shedding itself and re- reframing itself like the death and resurrection cycle is consistent so there's some things that always will have to die so that new things can live as in, and so so it should be with religion but the thing is you talked about and that's a really interesting point you, you talked about you know that um, consistency and that you know that that's um, you know people would use religion as a scapegoat because they they're looking for you know consistency or their security or, or what certainty. have you certainty sorry certainty but you what you're talking about almost seems to be this like agility this constant agility that nothing is certain and you've always got a question you've always got to be able to shed beliefs and and explore new ones so i kind of say it goes far as saying that is the christian tradition is the constant dying and rising again so it's like christ was an atheist in many ways because you know, I was an atheist to the tradition that he grew up in. This is not the way it should be. Yeah, true. That's and what that, it was all about: turning yeah, over the yeah, tables in the, yeah, in the this temple. This isn't how it should be. Yeah. And there's a new way of doing it. So it's like shedding one thing to re- to embrace something new and different. So something has to die for something to live. Maybe. Wow. And it's and that's yeah. It's, like, like, it's, it's almost like the. Yeah, people can point the finger at religion and say it's archaic and it's old school, and yet, you know, Jesus, the Christ, the resurrected Christ, was almost the epitome of no. This is what it's about. It's about dying. And right. I love that kind of idea that, like he said, that you know, I'll destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Like that kind of idea of like everything that you think can contain the divine is about to be destroyed. 
and it will be resurrected in the person, in a human being. That actually the only the only place that the divine resides is in people. Fascinating. Everything that you think is solid and sure and immovable, it will be broken down. Yeah. And so, and I, I don't. I'm not. A, um, I'm, I'm wow. a kind of universalist. Like I don't. I don't believe that there's any kind of single denomination or anything that has the answer to everything. I think that's arrogance or, or even idolatry, because you begin to worship the thing that you've created to contain what you think you're touching. So it's kind of like you, you get an essence of what you think you're all about, so you then create like a container around it, and then you start preserving the container rather than remembering what was in it. Um, so it's like democracy is a good example. My brother, oh, it's my brother, my, my son the other day and I were talking about um, democracy, because he's, he's studying all manner of stuff at school at the moment, and he said to me, Dad, do you believe in democracy? I was like, absolutely. He said, so you then endorse a system that oppressed women, um, agree, agreed with slavery, um, remove people from the franchise based on property qualifications you know do you still stand by that um, that you believe in democracy I was like well of course because democracy's got to grow and change and like it's developed like and he said well isn't that the same as any tradition it's like does that mean that you kind of throw off um, you know every idea you've ever had you know because the idea the idea sort of has some kind of beauty to it in spite of itself but it's not vulnerable. It's not invulnerable to manipulation or, or being. So you mean the idea, the, the, the <laughs> excuse me, the pure essence of democracy, and what it stands for, and, and what it could be if it yeah. was like done. Right. done yeah, that, that, that done really properly. hasn't changed. That's right. the consistent. That's the certainty that there's some aspirational hope to that thing, that it could be this, and that's the motivator. Right. That's the kind of thing. But it. it at any given time, if you held democracy and, sta- and keep it static, and at any given time, it would be completely intolerable. You know, like you know, when the franchise just did, didn't include women, that's intolerable position to be in. Yeah, yeah. But um, it, that does does that. But there were stages that had to go through. And I'm not saying that they were necessarily like any of them were um, great in themselves, but clearly there was an incremental movement towards an enlightening and an enlightened kind of or a developing idea about what democracy could actually be. And we're still on it. Like and like right now we're watching people around the world take that beauty, that beautiful idea and ruin it, you know? So it's kinda of like a democracy showing its weaknesses at the moment. In the same way, you know, I suppose that like any idea is vulnerable to being both beautiful and disastrous. And I think that um, if 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 there is a divine presence, then all religion is is an attempt to kind of touch that or explain that or kind of articulate it. And it's immediately flawed because language will fail, right? So like the words won't actually yeah, do it. Yeah. And, 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 and our understanding is limited, yeah. so we can't we, we can't can only go so far in trying to conceptualize. As soon as it becomes dogmatic or becomes kind of like um, a, a set of kind of agreed rules or rituals it's become vulnerable to idolatry like it's, it's you're then worshipping the ideas that you or the things you created or curated to try and understand that thing rather than actually allowing yourself to experience it so I kind of wonder whether in an attempt for certainty again you're kind of like trying to compartmentalise or con, like control something so that you can feel confident that what you're doing is right but the first thing you have to concede is that you actually don't just don't know like I think it was that Augustine said Augustus not Augustine that um, Augustine said that um, I think it was him he said something like as soon as you can name it it's no longer God What's that? if you can name it it's no longer God oh right 
you know, so the deity is something. The deity is something we we, we aren't ever really intended to understand. Well, right. I mean, in the sense that no, that's not true. Like it's like in, in the same way that anything is unknowable. Like I think one of the supreme arrogances would be, for instance, in a relationship, if you said to your partner that I know you. It's like no, you don't. Like you are knowing them. It's more of a. It's an act rather than like an. It's a verb rather than a noun. You know, like you don't. I don't know someone. I'm participating in the knowing of them. And so, otherwise, if I say I know you, I'm then controlling you. I'm containing you to like a place and time of what I think you are. Right. And I'm then therefore disappointed if you shift or change or grow. Right. But there is obviously clearly going to be like some consistent nature that you have, which I'm curious about and kind of compelled to know more about. But I don't even know myself. You know, like, and that, like that's still a mystery. So you kind of like, you know, if you think about, if I said, "Can you explain who you are, James?" You'd be like, "Well, uh, you'd have a few ideas, but you'd get stuck after a little bit." And I think that if that's true about yourself, then surely it has to be true about bigger things. And that doesn't mean that it's flawed or weak. It actually means it's kind of mystical and mysterious and beautiful and revelatory and kind of like what true love is is that participation and that kind of unravelling I suppose there's this guy called Peter Rollins who's like a um, I don't know he's, he has this thing called pyrotheology which is around kind of like the idea that you burn everything down to rebuild it all the time so he has his quote on his website is um, the only good church is a burning church or something like that but like but he's, he's got a Christian heritage but his, it kind of comes from the idea that you have to destroy the things that you have been made into idols to be able to then get to the essence of what it actually was about again and, and anything that's too big to fail is evil so that you know when you get to a point where something has created or institution or whatever has become so big that it can't actually experience failure then it actually needs to be under, undermined because it's no longer about um, relationship or anything it's now about power so then is that potentially what God is God is this being or this thing or this entity that's constantly reassessing itself I don't, I, don't, I don't know if I can really answer that question I think that well, oh, that was a trick question well yeah. done you passed <laughs> I, um, I think that like um, there's a difference between a god with a little g like which is like um, a personality that we create or kind of like um, we you know we call Maui's a god or Zeus or whatever I'm always like demigods because they kind of like play a role they help us understand things in society like Poseidon whatever it might be but then I think there's this thing which sits beyond all of that like so I'm not really interested in that I'm not really interested in demigods like I'm interested in the nature of being like being itself like because ultimately like I suppose you get down to the fact that there's at its most brutal, there's either being or not being, right? At its most brutal, but everything it can be reduced down to either it is or it isn't. Right, yeah. So at some the point... isness that you're talking about. Yeah. So, like, what is the thing? What is the thing beyond... Like, I think that... It's like, if I believe in a god, it's a god beyond gods. Like, it has, it's this, the ground of all things. Like, it's the, 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 the fundamental... Kind of um, blueprint of all things. It's being itself. Right. So it's in it's in all things and around all things because it has to be. Like it cannot be because there was either none, nothing, or something. So all things have to be a part of that. So um, you know, all all. I can't, so I, it's a bit kind of hard to really articulate and without being kind of too much of a wanker. But it's like um, 
I was reading this book the other day by this guy called David Bentley Hart, who kind of he said something which kind of got me. He said, um, even if you reduce, like for something to be natural, it has to be contingent on something else. That's the kind of way we understand naturals. Like you know, this happens because it happens. It's kind of a natural condition. So that gets most brutal. There was a point where something was either something hit at one time. Something um, had to be contingent on nothing, or. The, the chicken and the egg, you mean? Or, yeah, or there's never been a start or an end. And like, if if that's both, if both of those things are true, they both still ask the same question, like on what is that fundamentally grounded on, right? And then he said this thing, which already got me. He said like, um, what we often mistake for natural is just familiar. Um, because he said he was saying that like, if you were in a forest and you came across like a glowing orb hanging in the in the forest and you were like oh my god where's this from like this is crazy orb you know flowing we've got to investigate what this is from it's so crazy it's so supernatural kind of thing he's saying that logically it, it, why are you any less impressed by a rock but I mean in the sense that where did that come from too like yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's kind of like we're just familiar yeah so it's not like um, we take it for granted we've seen it yeah so, it's, it's, it. so his argument is that I think I understand it is that everything is supernatural because it has to come from either like a place where there was nothing was where something came from nothing which is not natural like yeah. so even if it was just subatomic quantum foam that was the only thing that came from nothing it's still something came from if that was still like a, the, the distance between something and nothing is infinite you know like so yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and then there's the other argument is if there was never a time if there was never contingency that means that something has always existed right. so what is that so that's what he would I would say would be the ground of all being which is what I don't care if you don't want to use the word God but that's what I would that's the word I choose to use and I believe I suppose that it's kind of like a um, ultimately benevolent creative force like and like any good creativity there's like it, it's um, it's not perfect. Like you can't good good things. The best paintings and stuff are not perfect. They're actually a little bit, you know. There's something about them. There's depth and cracks and crevices and the good, you know. I think that's actually that's the, that's the um, divine imprint is not perfection in the way we understand it, which I think is impossible. But in kind of like in its very fragility, is the perfection that's where the relationship can exist you know you don't know anybody that you really like who's perfect you hate those people because what, how do you connect with them <laughs> you know how do you have anything to do with a person who's perfect that is boring and awful like I want people that have got like a few cracks and crevices that I can kind of like feel myself as a part of that or participate in some way and so in the participation you create the third thing and that third thing it has to be divine because it's neither me nor you it's something else that we both know is happening we can't explain and it's abstract but it still yeah. it still sits there how do, you, how do you think that applies to just take, taking it away from religion for a second or, or spirituality social media I feel like so many things circle back to that you know you're talking about the idea of perfection people are doing everything they can to portray this perfection to try and recreate themselves I think that speaks to like a a deep sense of meaninglessness that people feel that they're having to create versions of themselves or um, 
kind of a an expression of it's like a stamp say I am alive or I am here or notice me or I am I am worth being noted or whatever it might be or that my life is amounts to something because they actually don't have a sense of value beyond beyond that like subconsciously I mean, I'm just making this up right now but it's like how do you feel necessary if people want you know you, it's like you want to feel noticed and necessary and visible otherwise it can feel like and, and if there's no um if there's no, in a most um, reductionist perspective, like if there's no spirituality, then and you're just matter, you're just meat, like you're just atoms and stuff, whatever. Like, which might be the true case, who knows? But, um, like, it's like everyone wants to feel like there's some purpose to what they're doing. It's like, so you have to become your own celebrity, right? But but isn't that isn't that true of life? Like, isn't that true of life anyway? If no one else existed and I was standing there on my own. Where would I get my sense of, you know, what what would ratify me? That's where I'd say that's where that's what spirituality is, that you are, that you just experience being as its own thing. Which is why the meditative movements and the contemplative movements are all about being still, because you can't but face the fact that you just are in that moment. There's nothing else happening except you're breathing in and you're breathing out. I mean, that's the whole point. It's like, you know, in that moment. But is you it no other thing? Is that potentially to play devil's advocate? Is that is that defeatist, and that we're kind of accepting what we are, but we're never aspirational, and we're never striving to be something more, and create ourselves and striving for to be better at what? To be stronger, to be more intelligent, to be more enlightened, to be. That's a great question. I'm not. I'm not saying those things are bad. I think they're great things. But often they're just used as other levers for um, meritocracy. Like I'm more intelligent than you. I'm more strong than you. I'm, you know, and I think it's about um, recognizing those things are good in themselves and they're helpful and they can be like um, beneficial to society and all that kind of thing. But if that's your goal, if that's your reason, it's like, well, what if the reason was, or you know, what if the preposition was, the more I know and the more I can do, the more I can help others as they're. And then, and then I'm helping them, and then someone. So if I'm, if I'm more enlightened at this point in time than my friend over here, well, I can help enlighten them. And if I'm in a more advanced position than them, there'll be someone in a more advanced position than me that's also helping me up. And collectively, we are all like growing. What and you mean by advanced? Yeah. Like I think um, there's a kind of there's an obsession with pro- progress as being good. Now I'm not a luddite, by the way. Like I don't, I'm not against progress. But I think we, we sometimes... Um, Wait, what did you say? A Luddite? Uh, Luddite. Like, and then oh. Industrial Revolution, the oh, Luddites okay. were the people yeah. smashing machines up and all that. Right, kind of right. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> um, but I kind of think that... I, I mean, one of my colleagues at a high school I worked at talked about this um, idea of um, solutionitis or kind of like um, sort of innovation obsession. It's like if, if schools aren't innovating or not being seen to be cutting edge or kind of doing the latest new thing that we're falling behind. But no one actually even asks the question or what are we falling behind or what's the thing we're falling behind on? Right, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, These arbitrary, uh, you know, things that we So we, we kind of create our own... Our own like things to measure up to, to. Fail yeah, to fail it. Well, yeah, it's yeah. so, I know we, we haven't got the right internet. We haven't got the. Like, I, I think I must have been through about ten different you know platforms as a high school teacher, like of, of like internet or kind of intranet or school fa- interfaces. And it's only six months later that the new ones developed, and we've got to get that one because that's the better one. It's like well, that's cool. I get it, but it's it's kind of like it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> it's like it's just efficiency that we're trying to create. And what's the efficiency actually doing? 
is it actually benefiting people or is it serving like someone's ego somewhere down the line that they've got a better product I mean yeah true good point good point I went to Berlin in 2009 and I went to the Berlin Museum and um, was speaking to this guy in the nuclear bunker that was in Berlin there was only enough beds there for like 8,000 people or something so if Berlin had been bombed it would have been a lucky 8,000 (laughs) Um, but he was talking about his dad was from the east and he was saying this uh, I was asking what was it like when when your dad when the wall came down like you know and he said, oh, it's traumatic because my dad worked in a factory that um, had 400 people working at it doing like menial kind of factory job. And they lived in this apartment in, in the city, which wasn't that expensive to live in because the, uh, the state kind of supported it. By the way, I'm not a communist either. I'm just telling the story. <laughs> um, but he said that when it ha- what happened when the wall came down for him was that investors that had cash came into the east and they bought the factory out and you know assessed it for efficiency and everything and managed to introduce new technology and new new things which then saw mass redundancies and they could then run the factory on say 40 people rather than 400 and his dad lost his job and then um, the same thing happened with the inner city apartments they got kind of bought by investors and he couldn't afford the rent and so in a space of a a short period of time his dad lost his income his job and his home um, in in the name of progress and efficiency and he was saying this guy was saying to me like even though it was completely inefficient even though the product wasn't that good Actually, his dad had a reason to get up in the morning. He he had friends, he had a community. He went to work, he had a place to live. He had milk and bread, and he felt like he had it was necessary to something, and that that was taken from him by progress. Now, he clearly benefits from from that progress because he's got a nice job as a museum director and all that kind of thing. But it made me think for years just about like, what is it actually? What was that? What's that for? Like, who's who did it that actually serve? And I'm not trying to romanticise socialism, by the way, because I know that it's completely as corrupt as any idea, like I said before. But um, I suppose that the, the challenge is to embrace nothing in that kind of way, like, you know, like to sit in the tension between things. So it's kind of like, yeah, I recognise. But that's the awkward place to be. Yeah, and that's what it means in my, my Christian version. That's what it means to be crucified with Christ, is like to sit in the awkwardest place and hold that pain and be crucified daily and be hated by everybody because you can't actually, you can't, you can't take a position necessarily except to and sort of take that pain and integrate it and try and transform it into something more positive. Like, I know it sounds cheesy, but like love. So like, you know, if you think about the conservative position or like, you know, the, it's just, it's impossible because it's an illusion and it's, it's bullshit. And like that kind of student, that desire for certainty, you know, that desire for kind of like certitude, and that's where your Mormon friend kind of can't stand the fact that you know, God forbid, that a gay person might love someone else. You know, it's like, you know and you can't you can't stay there because it's ridiculous. But there's also beautiful things about the conservative traditions, which have created templates for ritual and conversation and reference points and symbol symbols and all that kind of thing that help us understand the world. And if we get rid of all of those, we we what are we left with? Right. So, but on the other end, you've got like um, the, the hard left or the hard, you know, the hard progressive end. It's like it's angry at everything. Like everything is wrong with the world. Nothing is right, and it's sort of angry and destructive, and it, it's critical and it's self-righteous and it's elitist and it kind of like um, and, and it kind of it doesn't mean to, but it goes about creates a new meritocracy based on how elite you are, you know, how good you are, and. and, and being liberal, like, and I was reading a book recently about. Actually, my friend was doing research about um, 
New Zealand students on New Zealand history field trips and with a swing towards more, um, rightfully, more um, pro-Māori narratives in New Zealand history. This, I believe this, by the way, this should be. The in, unintended consequence of some of these teachers embracing these new narratives without nuance. Well, not new narratives, but kind of like you know, um, new understandings without being nuanced has led to unintended consequences for people. So he was interviewing these students from a tribe that had been Kupapa, that had fought with the armed constabulary in one of these battles, and they were saying how they felt twice humiliated on the field trip because now they weren't, at one time they'd suffered from colonisation, but now they and they were also now participants with the government, so they, were, they weren't able to participate in either narrative. You know, and then they just felt like excluded twice over. It's like, you know where no one, no one wanted to kind of understand that there was subtlety or nuance to those relationships that had happened. The teacher was just going, colonial, bad, resistance, right. But actually, there was that Kupapa tribe was also in its active resistance. It just wasn't a different, it was a different way, and it was, you know, complicated, and I'm going all over the place now, so I'm going to flag that bit. But, no, 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 no. But, you know, like the, the, the idea you, that... explain that more? I feel that... Well, I suppose what I'm saying is, it's like... Um, so say, 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 like, you know, like, uh, and the progressive, the progressive lens would be um, that post-colonial period or colonialism, all evil overthrow everything, right? But within that period, there was a multiple layers of complexity. So, in some of the New Zealand wars, for instance, tribes fought on both sides. Oh, did they? Yeah. Right. So, and they're called kupapa. Like, so that's what the, they get called by people. Like they fought with the with the armed constabulary or with the British for their own tribal reasons, like to, against tribal enemies, people that they had animosity against for generations, or for like Utu, whatever it might have been. And and some of the narratives that we're now developing, which are really important, and good yeah. narratives, yeah. Um, teachers who are not really willing to investigate and the, the and be agile again, right. sit in that place of being hated. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, means that they can inadvertently just create a new power narrative which excludes other people's experiences from, from that. So, you know, and it doesn't, it doesn't um, take into account just sheer human fragility, like the, the sheer tragedy of the whole thing for everybody on every side. You know, like um, these kids from these Kupapa, these that, that um, had Kupapa connections saying to this, my friend who's a researcher, that they just felt like they couldn't participate in any of their conversations now because they, they weren't, um, whites, they couldn't, weren't colonials, they couldn't kind of like participate in that kind of story of, um, well, we're sorry. That, they, they didn't even have the, that, that felt awkward, and then they didn't feel like they could be on the side they had fought against, you know, um, unrighteousness, or, or, you know, they'd actually participated with the government forces, and, and they felt like it kind of made them, t- they couldn't participate as the Māori resistance narrative or fully with the colonial one. You know, and, and, and the, the, the new narrative that's being formed is basically doesn't include them at all. It yeah, just completely what, wipes them out of the history books. But they, as young people, felt like they didn't really know what that meant meant for them. I mean, oh, it takes okay, it okay. takes engagement. It yeah, takes yeah, kind yeah. of like it takes sort of an agility and nuance and kind of goodwill and and hard work to actually deal with all those different stories. Yeah. And I suppose what I'm trying to get to with that the problem with the far progressive end is that that kind of subtlety can become lost. And, and so there's a new meritocracy where it's like, how good are you at being resi- a resistor? Or how good are you at being like a... Um, how, how good were you at being... Um, uh, standing up for your... For these values, or whatever it might be. But there's dozens of reasons why things might be or not be that kind of way. And I think we have to remain humane in it. So 
I suppose I try and sit now between those two extremes, like holding both of them is true. Like I, I believe in progressive causes and I also believe there's beautiful things in conservative traditions which can be treasured, which kind of holds you in that tension. And then on the other axis, it's between your head and your, or your, your intellectual understanding and your experience. So my, it's like um, I can learn as much as I want and know nothing. And I can experience as much as I want and still know nothing. But somewhere between those two, there's some sense of uh, it sits closer to something that's true. So, um, like at the at the top end, facts just utilitarian. Like they're just kind of stuff that's true, you know. Like and they're kind of like um, factual kind of truth. But my experience is not factual in the sense that no one can prove it, but it's true to me. So those, those two things must sit somewhere in, the, in between. But I need I need to do intellectual learning to make sense of my experience, just like I need to have experiential learning so that I don't become arrogant intellectually. You know, I think I know what I'm saying. I, I think I know what you're saying. Yeah. It, it's one of you know, this is one of those conversations I know I'll go and you know go away and, and ruminate over it and take time to understand. But that's I love these conversations because they take you in depth to uh, to different things that I don't necessarily think about in the day to day. You know, those. It's just, um, Christian scripture where the Apostle Paul says something like that: the Christian message is um, folly to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews, or something like that. And, what, and apparently, what it means is that. It's, it makes no sense in the head. So the Greeks cannot understand why you would follow a failed leader, like a, a, a person who was murdered and killed and lost. But basically, I love the fact that that's a, the lamest story of all. Like hero comes and the loses, you know. And then for the Jews, it wasn't miraculous enough. It was yeah. not. It wasn't. It wasn't like a king suddenly went to the throne and yeah, grandiose. Yeah, yeah. That it wasn't kind of like the sign. So like the Jews were looking for the experience, the sign, and the Greeks were looking for the rational. Um, you know, that, that kind of answer that's what I kind of say yeah. but it can be neither of those so that's the head and the experience but somewhere between those some kind of yeah I don't know I, I mean I, I'm only emerging into this kind of stuff like I'm I'm trying to just be a participant yeah so so you are, yeah that was going to be my question where do you sit are you Christian not Christian spiritualist atheist or are you in that awkward uncomfortable place right in the middle of everything where you're allowing yourself to be uncomfortable and to you know think about things or shed beliefs and try new ones I think they're like um, unfortunately in western 21st century society the word Christian is like a horrible word to most people because it's associated with you know sexism uh, misogyny racism you know all those things that we can power and all that stuff. And I, I think it's nothing to do with Christianity whatsoever. I think it's simply to do with power. Um, and you can take any movement that's been integrated into a, a position of being um, the power, uh, you know, holding holding the reins of control, and it, it corrupts itself because that's 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 what happens. But I um, so I, I don't really feel like I can say I'm a part of Christian as as an, an organisational kind of thing. I feel like that quite. That's quite a different, distinct thing, but I, I would be intellectually and personally dishonest to say I'm not a Christian. And that, that tradition, whatever that tradition is, that exploration, using that language and using that kind of framework for exploring those things is what I do. But that's also an honest reflection of, you know, my own cultural upbringing as well. Like why would, why would I? Um, why would I not use that tradition to explore these things? Like, 
in the same way that why would a Hindu not use Hinduism to explore those those things, while being critical of it, like any any kind of you have to be critical of the thing you love. I mean, you only have the right to be critical of the thing that you actually love, really, because you're prepared to give back to it as well. So, so I, I'm I'm the fiercest critic. Like I despise evangelicalism, for instance. I I'm looking forward to the evangelical American movement to dying a you know, a death. I can't wait for that to finish. Like what an what an awful movement that is. What an anti-Christian movement. Completely antithesis of what I believe in. Um, I think but I would be lying to say I wasn't engaged deeply in the Christian tradition and the symbols of it and the message of it and the underpinning kind of like drive of it permeates everything in my life Um, so when I do my prayer I'm connecting to a Christian tradition I'm not I'm not um, what do you mean your prayer when you the contemplative stuff that I, that I do like I'm not thinking about they're my reference points so like I, I am, I'm interested in things like the Eucharist like I, I like I like the um, symbols of the blood and the bread and things like that or the wine and the bread oh, yeah, like you know, the, the sacrament or the Holy Communion so I use those things as symbols for myself like okay. I like the idea that um, that there's like a constant symbol like I can use as a reminder of suffering and joy being held in the same place for instance but I don't think I need a priest to give it to me right right yeah so like um, should you for the sake of your own argument should you be shedding those symbols and exploring no symbols or exploring new symbols or well, I think that, like, I am. Because I come from a Protestant... Like, I grew up in a Protestant tradition. Like, a brethren kind of thing when I was a kid. So I have nothing to do with that kind of thing at all anymore. Right, true. So I just, you know... But I, I'm also... I mean, I'm, in, I'm not, like, um, against learning from other traditions at all. It's just that... It's like asking someone who grew up in a culture to kind of shed that culture completely. It's too much part of my... DNA in lots of ways yeah, so it's like um, why would I not it's like asking someone who grew up in Te Ao Māori to no longer do porphyry or you know whatever it might be yeah. that you do or because maybe there's a different way of doing it it's like no that's your language that helps you understand that's your, it informs your lens on life yeah, yeah that's right and so I'm not saying that it's like the only lens I'm not saying that like other people haven't touched the divine in their own tradition I just happen to think that this particular tradition offers me like a way of exploring it which makes sense to me and I think it's really um, beautiful and that it suggests that God becomes things like becomes loves by becoming you know becoming turning into incarnating into reality and like a me and a you and, and, and everything nature and that it turns into stuff that's the creative impulse my son my littlest son said the other day he says like created he goes I think God he goes I thought it was amazing theology he goes um, my argument he's not he's getting little he goes um, I think God blew up and that everything we see are the parts of him 
was like, well, that's crazy. He's like, he's dead. He died. Like, boom, he died. And he and all the bits from turned into what we see. It's like, yeah, that's kind of like I get it. Like that you you when you love so much, it feels like you just explode into something else. And um, he was like, but I love the idea that kind of like it was almost like um, a, a huge kind of paint just exploding onto a canvas, and then the DNA of that turning into other things. Well, probably neither had I. I mean, it's like from a four-year-old. You know? I'd say four years old. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> four, I think he was four when he said it. Four oh, or five right. years. Wow, fascinating. Right. I don't know, James, if you talk to me in six months' time, I'd probably have slightly different ideas again. Well, actually, funnily enough, the last time we spoke, had a conversation, you said that same thing. Then you were pretty open to the fact that you are all, you feel you're always changing, you're always open to change. Um... And I think that's a that's a really good quality to have. It, it's it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to allow yourself to be flexible and agile. You lose, um, yeah. You lose, yeah. It's, I think it's like, just uncomfortable. I find people don't like they don't like it because they want to know what you stand for. But when you, and that's innate in us as well. We categorize people, the fight or flight, where we need to understand people before we approach them or allow them to approach us. And it's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a subconscious thing that we do. But I think the thing is that it's clear what I do stand for. I just haven't aligned to a, because I haven't aligned to like a, um, I can't, I'm not wearing the, the, the progressive badge or the conservative badge or the liberal badge. It's like, people don't like the fact that you don't buy their package. So like, you know, for instance, um, if I wanted to align myself with the with, with say a conservative position, it's like, well, you must buy these six things that we all stand for. So what, what if I only buy two of them? Like, you know, am I allowed to still be a part of it with those two bits? You know, and the same the other way around. It's like, well, if you want to be in the liberal kind of progressive lane, what if I don't actually feel that way about that one? Is that is that okay? You know, and then and it, so I think there's exclusion happening everywhere, and I think I am. Um, I'm really just simply interested in the one common denominator. If it comes down to it, it some everything if I think about it would be, I think the only common denominator that we have is that we're all broke. There's like it's a human fragility. And I'm really interested in what that actually, what that opens you up to being. Like um, that if we start by recognizing that every person you meet has that same fragility, no matter what their politics or positions are, and isn't that a common denominator we can all yeah, at least yeah. start from? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, looking for things that we haven't. We're, we're all a little bit fucked up, yeah, so that's my that's, <laughs> that's my, our my common ground. Same, same. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's also about kind of integrating your own. Um, like you need to, rather than rejecting things in, about your, you, you can you need to integrate it somehow so it's kind of like yeah I, that's how I feel or that's how I think right now so how do I transform that by facing it rather than um, pretending it's not true so like it's like today for instance this just happened today like I was doing my, my prayer that's what I call it now I used to call it um, mindfulness or meditation but let's be honest it's prayer <laughs> that's what it is I'm not okay. and, and how does that look you're just like is it first thing in the morning you wake up and I try and do 20 minutes a day just quiet just sit, just sitting there and and try and think of nothing at all that try and forget everything that I care about and try and not think about anything at all 
<laughs> sounds hard. Yeah, but then that's when you kind of meet your. That's when you can kind of recognize yourself in a different way. So I was thinking this morning. I was doing that, and I was thinking about why. Well, it was weird. Like um, I suppose I was thinking about what my what I what I run from and. In that time, I recognised that, like, when I was a kid, like, I was an observer and I witnessed to lots of things and never felt like a participant. Okay. And so, like, um, one of my biggest fears, I suppose, was being invisible, you know, like, not being noticed. Okay. And then, therefore, in the relationships that I have, that I have formed, often I find myself sometimes playing for visibility because I'm afraid of, of being not maybe just an observer again or being not, not noticed. That's valid. Yeah, but it's not healthy. Because it's actually a, it comes from a place of fragility rather than health, you know. And I'm not I'm not ashamed of that. But I want to be able to enjoy people because of who they are, not because of what I need from them. And, and so, like, um, Wait, so say that again. You want to be able to enjoy people because of for who they are, not because of what I need from them. Right, you know? right. And, yeah. And, and, and I'm, this isn't something that kind of like happens all the time in every relationship I have it's not like that but it's like I recognise that why do I feel pissed about that or why do I feel uncomfortable in that situation it's like oh it's because I feel like invisible in that situation and that was that's a, that's a theme right from whatever growing up whatever it was but facing that now I have got a choice either I can make that like a woe is me or like a kind of like a um, you know how tragic was my but where am I? Or I can say that's actually not a good way to think about the world and try and integrate it and change that. And the first thing is by telling people it's kind of like that alcoholics anonymous thing. Yeah. I'm Andrew Savage and I feel invisible, you know, <laughs> and I don't want to. But I also realise that there's something very selfish about the way I act when I don't want to be. You know, it might not compare that way. But even like at the council, like when we're working together. I turn up and I'm having fun and all that. Part of that's about like wanting not to be just the, the no one in the room, you know, like wanting to be a part of it, wanting to feel like I'm a participant or that I'm necessary to that group or that I feel like I'm uh, a functioning contributor, right? So it's not all altruistic. Some of it's actually based on fear. You know, but I didn't know that until this morning. I'm glad to be part of the discovery. Wow. Yeah. I said to my wife before I came here, so I'll tell you something this afternoon when I get home. <laughs> I should try and get this episode up quickly then everyone else can find out I don't know but you know that, that kind of idea that like it's, it's like it's not like the thing in itself is bad or good it's just that I realise that that's, that's a theme that, that I recognise and so that only happens when I'm completely not distracted because like you have to face something yeah it kind of come, it come it's like you are the, the divine image within you knows you knows you better than anything, as knowing you better than any, and helps you know yourself. So, so it almost sounds like it almost sounds like you are trying to remove yourself from any kind of thought or distraction, and as a result, once the distractions are removed, then all of a sudden you have a chance to see things yeah. for the way they it's are. Like, it's like a um, Christian tradition as well. It's like you know Christ was saying, "Those who have ears, let them hear; those who have eyes, let them see." It's not talking about physical seeing or hearing it's about like recognizing what's actually happening and you know what a, a what am I saying a topic of conversation or, or, or a, prep, a preposition that I think has been raised a number of times is that the unfortunate aspect of current society is that 
there are so many things distracting us that nobody is taking time to actually just sit and look. Um, Isn't it like, and, and that's quite dangerous. Isn't that Aldous Huxley's like, Brave New World thing? We're so distracted that it's tyranny. Oh, sorry, what's that? I need to, I need to read that. Yeah, um, Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. Like, it's about the, a society which is pretty much so... Um, well, you know, it's, people are comfortable so that things tyranny can happen because you're no longer you're so distracted. Like distraction is tyranny. Yeah. You know, with your comfort, comfort is tyranny in a weird way because you're not asking the right questions anymore. As long as you're not uncomfortable, why would you let everything else happen around you? And we do. You know, and, and, that, and that flows on to the idea, you know, or, or, or the theory, conspiracy theory, if you will, that with Donald Trump coming and it's kind of like he was always expected to come in because he was a. He was going to distract people with his um, his idiocy and, and just the way he does things, so that all of these policies and agendas could be pushed through without people realizing. He, he, he's the he's the main attraction and and the major distraction, and so much is going on without us even realizing. It goes back to your social media comment, like the greatest distraction from who you actually are, or what you actually need, or the relationships you actually value, or how you value those relationships even. No. I, I suppose that's a, that's for me, and the flip side of that, you know, is that it, um, we know what tyranny looks like when it's kind of um, more explicit. But isn't it not isn't it not in some ways the same? Implicit tyranny. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I think that's kind of like what the, the for me the Christian tradition asks me to do is to say neither of those things, neither like extreme comfort. Or you know, whatever it might be on that spectrum, like they're both they're both empty. They're both kind of like meaning meaningless in themselves. Like the only thing that you have is participation in relationship, in relationship with other people, in relationship therefore to God through other people. That's the only thing you have. It really, and you only have it by participation. So like life is participation. That's all it is. It's not achievement or you know climbing a ladder or kind of being better than somebody else. It simply comes down to how do I love the person in front of me right now. Interesting. That makes me think of you know all the arguments about how erroneous it is to give a participation you know certificate for everyone that turned up and gave it a try, and that you should be rewarding those who actually excelled and achieved. Um, because otherwise you never make anything aspirational. Um, but maybe there's a counter-argument to that, you know what I mean? I'm not against... Um, oh, no, no, I know, you, I know, you're, I, I know you're not against... Like, for instance, I'm glad that we've had uh, developments in you know, technology to be able to make music or whatever it might be. It's cool. It's cool, but I just think that when that becomes the drive, when that becomes more important than the people that are around you, you've got to stop and ask yourself a question. Yeah, true. Yeah. Have we gone too far? Yeah, yeah. Who are we serving? Like, and who, you know, who, who are we actually benefiting here? Um, when I was on my sabbatical, I, and I thought, this is when I started getting interested in this stuff, by the way, was when I was on my sabbatical a couple of years ago, and I asked myself that question, like, what, what is... Um, Where's this sabbatical idea come from? You know, what's the Sabbath anyway? And it led me down a whole lot of different researchy kind of things, and I came across this um, interpretation of the Jewish story of the Exodus, which was a really great interpretation. But in that story, the um, the, you know, the Israelites are in captivity in Egypt, and Egypt's symbolism of the kind of power of the day, or kind of like the empire of the day. So it's like the whatever that might be. So these are all metaphors for things for me. And the people were. Um, enslaved to the to the pharaoh and they're building they're being made to build bricks so they just make bricks day in day out making bricks for the pharaoh 
so he can build his monuments, whatever it might be. And their lives, that's all they are, they're, they're brick builders. And then they go to the pharaoh and they say, um, we can't do this, like we, we, we can't build bricks every day, 24-7, whatever it might be. Well, not 24-7, seven days a week, whatever it was. And the pharaoh was really furious and says, well, you know, not only, are you, not only are you going to now make bricks the same amount of time, you're now going to make them, and I'm not going to provide the straw for you. So you still have to make the same number of bricks, but you have to do it. But you've got to find the resources as well. It sounds to me like an economy, like where it, where it's like, you know, we take, we keep taking from people and expecting them to produce more, and, and then they break. They basically they break and they go and say, we're we're, we're leaving. You know, we're going. And, and, and there's an awful that you know all those kind of metaphorical things that happen with the. Um, different signs and, yeah but then they, then they finally uh, they flee and when they get out of Egypt one of the first things they do is they talk about well, we need to create a new world a new way of doing things we can't what we, we've only lived in this world for the last 40 years or 100 years what are we going to do now like we're facing this kind of major challenge in our lives like what the hell we're no longer slaves what do we do and one of the first things they do is they say oh, like, we're going to have the Sabbath day is like a day that, of rest that we will not work on that day and like that's being taken and manipulated and bullied into being used as a weapon against people. But actually, this interpretation is that was actually an assertion to say we will no longer be slaves. That we are entitled to be human. On one day a week, we will not work. That we will just enjoy being itself for the very sake that we even that the fact we even exist in itself will just be noted on that day. That nothing else will happen except being, not doing. And so it's an assertion against slavery. As opposed to like saying, you know, you must worship God. It's like, that's not what it was about. It's like, you worship by being, you know, or you kind of pay tribute just by being, not by doing anything. And, um, you know, and I thought it's a really profound interpretation of it. Yeah, I've never heard that interpretation before, but it makes perfect sense. You've done that a few times in the conversation. You've recontextualized it with what would have been happening right at that time and then something that, you know, came into play like a law or, you know, enacting the Sabbath day, all of a sudden it makes perfect sense considering the circumstances at that time. I like that because like you say, we, so much of religion or, or, or you know, um, is based on all of this old scripture that we're kind of viewing with today's, you know, kind of lens. But I think it's always you can't forget that all those texts, all those sacred texts uh, have been developed over hundreds of years. And then there's this weird moment in Western history where someone says, oh, well, we'll decide that that's the collection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What a, what a, what a crap. I mean, yeah. sure, surely there's more to add They to put it. things in and they lift things out and they decided what was the canon of scripture. Therefore, to me, like, creation is the first, the first kind of um, scripture, if you like. Um, those, those letters and those stories are, are just beautiful attempts by people to try and understand and explain things and they're full of evil and disgusting people and aspirational people and you know it's a story of human humanity and all of its most dark and also most beautiful all at the same time and I think there's that hasn't finished that has kept happening so like um, I don't believe that it's God's word in the sense of it was dictated by some kind of being but I think that and as much as anything is God's word, like a song, it's like it tells us something about people right, yeah. and their attempt to understand and you know, touch the thing beyond what they actually can contain. Oh, I really like it. I really like it.
really, really like that. You, you, you reshaped the Bible as not a book of religion or God's word per se, as it is a book of humanity. Yeah, and a fucked up humanity, by the way. That, there's really fucked up ideas about God. A collection of stories about humanity. And even like the things like, um, if, you, if you actually pay attention, you can see an evolution of of human, humanity throughout it, like of, of human understanding. So, for instance, this is, I read this book about this. Um, this is awful, by the way. This is an intolerable story. I just cannot stand this story at all. But there's this um, story in the Old Testament where um, there's a rule passed about what happens when you take a, a woman after a battle, right? So, they, in the story, it says if you're taking a, a woman after you've killed her husband in battle brutally, then you will shave her head off. Her hair off, sorry, her head, shave her hair off. Um, you will lock her in a room for a month um, and allow her to, you know, to mourn her husband. And then after a month, if you still want her, you will make her your wife, right? You know, it's brutal. Yeah. This and, is in the Old Testament, isn't it? Yeah, yeah it's a brutal, it's not evil, right? It's completely evil. And there's, there's, no way, there's no way in hell you can ever stand by that as anything but nasty. This is human beings that are making laws, not God, right? Before that law, women would be cast aside and you know abused and then killed or whatever in the battle, and that would be it. What this law was trying to say was, in a weird way, well, you, you, you allow her to mourn, so you shave her hair off because that's a sign of mourning, you allow her to mourn for a month for her dead husband, and if you still want to sleep with her, you must make her a part of your household, which means she gets the protection of a wife, which means she's not going to be vulnerable to being exploited by other people. Now, it's still evil, but it's a click forward from what would have been rape and leave. <laughs> now, I'm not saying it's right. I think it's completely evil. But the idea behind it is a positive move forward. Somebody was thinking, I don't know about, I don't know about the other, you know, and it's patriarchal and it's evil. I, I, don't get me wrong, I'm not kind of trying to defend it. But if you read everything through the lens of the 21st century, you're always you're going to hate everything you read. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, James. Um, but yeah, this has been great. Very enlightening. Yeah. Um, and I think you've touched on a, a bunch of things that. I certainly feel uh, over my head, like sitting here trying to conceptualize it, very hard for me. It's the type of thing, I, as I say, I have to go away and ruminate over it and try and, you know, understand it and, you know, put it to the test in order to to really sink my teeth into what you've said. But I think those conversations are really important because there, there have to be things that are difficult to understand and we have to really study them to to be more informed and to be better and I don't think things should just be so surface level straightforward and understanding or clickbaity that it's like oh yeah I get it because then no one's being informed so I've really uh, yeah this has been a great conversation thanks James thanks.